Hello and welcome to the Sparkle Tech Time Capsule, a weekly glance back at the weird and wonderful happenings that have made San Francisco, San Francisco. This week, America's master birdman makes his final flight. It's the second week of March, 2009. March 15th, 1915. It was the year of the legendary Panama Pacific International Exposition. San Francisco had once again earned that phoenix on her flag by rising from the ashes of the 1906 earthquake and fire. And just nine years later, the city celebrated its rebirth by winning the right to host the World's Fair. Visitors from every point on the compass swarmed towards California to visit the resurgent city. You probably know that the site of the fair is the neighborhood now called the Marina, that acres of shoreline mudflats were filled in to create space for a grand and temporary city, and that the mournfully elegant Palace of Fine Arts is its lone survivor. The exhibits and attractions on offer were endless and famously enchanting, but one of the most spectacular took place in the air above the fair. On March 15th, a quarter of a million people gathered in the fairgrounds and on the hills above them to see a man in an ultra-modern experimental airplane perform unparalleled feats of aeronautical acrobatics. That man was Lincoln Beachy, and in 1915, he was the most famous aviator in the country, known from coast to coast as the man who owns the sky. That tune was Lincoln's unofficial theme song, Too Much Mustard, and it was probably ringing in his ears as he waited to fly for his hometown crowd. Lincoln Beachy was born in San Francisco back in 1887. It was the age of technology and tinkering, and young Lincoln was a kid of his time. The family was a poor one. His Civil War veteran father was blind, so Lincoln had acquired a small bicycle shop and was learning to ride and fix motorcycles by the time he was 13 years old. But speeding along the ground was one thing. At the turn of the century, it seemed as though the whole world was trying to get into the air, and Lincoln was no exception. By the time the bicycle-tinkering Wright brothers had made aeronautical history at Kitty Hawk in 1903, Lincoln had already pinned his aerial hopes to a rival technology, the balloon. At age 17, he joined Thomas Scott Baldwin's already famous powered dirigible troop, and then built his own airship. To the consternation of Congress, he flew it around the Washington Monument and parked on the White House lawn. Though occasionally crashing the thing into buildings, rivers, and trees, Lincoln toured the country demonstrating his balloon piloting prowess and becoming one of America's best-known aeronauts. He was a little behind the times. Several years earlier, the Wright brothers had demonstrated their fixed-wing airplane in Europe, and in 1908, the United States Army ordered one. This was the beginning of the end of the era of the airship. Lincoln himself was finally convinced after a 1910 race with an aeroplane. He and his balloon were beaten badly, and remarking to a pal that, boy, our racket is dead, he switched, never flying an airship again. His first two flights at Glenn Curtis's flying school ended very quickly in piles of twisted airplane wreckage. Somehow he talked his way into making try number three, which was a successful solo flight. In fact, he showed such aptitude for flying, specifically that combination of fearlessness and skill necessary for stunt flying, that by the end of 1911 he was a member of Curtis's official team. 
Over the next few years, Lincoln would pull off an amazing series of aerial stunts. In New York, he flew over Niagara Falls, down the gorge, and then under Honeymoon Bridge. In Chicago, he dove down into the skyscraper-walled streets and skimmed the roofs of cars with his landing gear, then set an altitude record by climbing until his fuel ran out. At the under-construction World's Fairgrounds in San Francisco, Lincoln actually took off, accelerated to 60 miles per hour, and landed his plane, all inside the huge palace of machinery. He was the first to fly a plane inside a building, the first to figure out how to pull out of a spin, to tail slide on purpose, nosedive with the engine off from 3,000 feet, and he could pick a handkerchief off the ground with a wingtip. And all of this while wearing a three-piece suit. The man had style. Lincoln owned every stunt that could be made, but after learning that something new had been accomplished in Europe, the inside loop, he couldn't live without giving it a try. Glenn Curtis refused to build Lincoln a plane capable of the act, so in response, he retired from flying. And he stayed retired until Curtis gave in. On his first attempt with the new plane, Lincoln made a speed-related mistake that actually resulted in the death of a spectator, and he retired again. This time, it was only until he spotted a circus poster showing a plane flying upside down, and he was lured right back into the sky. When he climbed back into the cockpit of his Curtis biplane, he became the first flyer in the United States to accomplish and master the inside loop. In 1914, he set off on his own for what would become the most celebrated barnstorming tour in American history. He cavorted in the air above 126 cities that year, also working up a series of staged airplane motorcar races with the famous driver Barney Oldfield. Somewhere along the way, Lincoln ordered a custom biplane he called the Little Looper, instantly recognizable by the gigantic capital letters spelling out Beachy on the upper wing. He could loop the loop until the cows came home, setting records almost every time he went into the air. At one exhibition, he ferris-wheeled through the sky 80 times in a row. By the end of 1914, he was the most popular and well-known flyer in the country, earning a quarter of a million dollars and performing in front of nearly 20 million people. For some perspective, that's nearly a quarter of the population of the entire country. Among those millions who saw the man fly was Orville Wright himself, who had earlier dismissed Lincoln's acrobatics as optical illusions. After seeing the show for himself, Orville opined that an aeroplane in the hands of Lincoln Beachy is poetry. His mastery is a thing of beauty to watch. He is the most wonderful flyer of all. Lincoln was declared the eighth wonder of the world by newspapers. Then writer-philosopher Albert Hubbard declared that each art has its master worker, its Michelangelo, its Milton. There is music and most inspiring grace in flight by man in the heavens, then posterity will write the name of Lincoln Beachy as the greatest artist on the aeroplane. The deftness of stroke of any of the old masters cannot exact his touch. He is truly wonderful. You'll see this in photos at the SparkleTech.com website, but Lincoln was also a handsome devil. His biographer, Frank Marrero, writes that the airmen's only vices were an extreme boldness and too many women. The blonde and firm-jawed airman was a magnet for young and female admirers, and he didn't exactly beat them off with a stick. Intimacy outside the bonds of marriage, or at the very least engagement, was, let's say, frowned upon in those gilded days. 
So Lincoln bought diamond engagement rings by the dozen and always carried one in a vest pocket for amorous emergencies. Europe was in the throes of the First World War by now, and the aerobatics that Beachy and others had pioneered, once derided as needlessly dangerous and self-aggrandizing, were being put to deadly use. The climate of the times was such that, working with the Army and Navy to get Congress interested in creating an Air Force, Lincoln added demonstration bombing to his repertoire. He crisscrossed the country, dropping smoke bombs in exhibitions, culminating in a dive-bombing run at the White House itself. All right, all of this flying and fame brings us right back up to the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition. Lincoln Beachy, as one of San Francisco's favorite sons, was delighted to take part. The master birdman added to the frenzied spectacle leading up to the opening by bombing a huge-scale model of the battleship Oregon, floating a mile offshore. As multiple explosions rocked and sank the wood and canvas vessel, spectators screamed and even fainted, imagining that the real battleship had just been sent to the bottom of the bay. But that wasn't enough for Lincoln. For him, even the old loop-the-loop was becoming old hat, and he had stunts in mind that required a newfangled kind of plane. Sleek and speedy single-winged aircraft were just starting to appear in workshops around the world, and Lincoln had been knocked out by seeing one airborne in France. Though it's often reported that his model was an Austrian-made Taube, other sources indicate that he'd actually collaborated in the design of a brand new machine, a one-of-a-kind, extra-small, high-performance monoplane. It was built in San Francisco, and what better occasion to give it a debut than at the World's Fair? The 250,000 people watching on that fateful March 15th knew Lincoln's reputation well. They knew about the cool new plane, and they were primed and ready to see something. The tiny plane taxied along in front of the grand exhibition halls and accelerated, rapidly disappearing into the sky at the unheard-of speed of 100 miles per hour. As the crowd craned their necks, Lincoln took the plane into one of his famous inside loops, then climbed to 3,000 feet. Then here's where history becomes somewhat confusing. I found eyewitness accounts, newspaper stories, read the fun-filled Wikipedia article, and so on. And as to what happened next, I cannot for the life of me decide which of the conflicting stories to believe. Some say it happened as he performed the dip of death, his dive from the sky and pull up at the last second routine. Others at the end of an inside loop. Still others at the very end of his performance, flying back towards the landing strip. One school of thought even conjectures that he was about to, or even in the act of trying to become the first aviator to fly a plane upside down. Whatever the story, the ending is the same. To the horror of all present, including Lincoln's friends and family, what happened was this. The slender wings of the little plane snapped right off. First one, then the other. Lincoln Beachy plunged helplessly downward and vanished beneath the surface of the bay. Divers, ironically from the real battleship Oregon, entered the water, and as the spectators held their collective breath, the bodies of both plane and pilot were brought to the surface. The greatest airman on the planet, three-piece suit and all, was still strapped into his cockpit, drowned. The city mourned, but somehow, in the intervening years, one of the greatest of the air pioneers, our own Lincoln Beachy, has been forgotten. I suspect the daredevil would like to be remembered in his own words. This comes from an interview given shortly before his death.
It's simply the dancing along life's icy brink and the attendant excitement that makes life worthwhile. Chance-taking is not a business with me. It's a delightful diversion, and no music lover is ever more charmed by listening to the inspiring strains of his favorite opera than I am charmed by the hum of my motor when I'm sailing in or out of a loop and upside-down flight. Some hunt lions and tigers for thrills, but I love the sky and answer its call because my whole life centers around the sensations of flying. It feels like being in love. That's the report for the second week of March, 2009. Tune in next Monday for another time capsule dredged up from the kaleidoscopic depths of San Francisco history. There are roughly a zillion beachy websites on the interweb, many with spectacular photos of the man and his various flying machines. A few of the photos appear at the SparkleTech website and a lot of the links. But what I really want to say here is this. How the heck is this man's life not yet a movie? Thanks for listening. Till next time.